We are talking once again with Job Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. So, uh, some interesting <laughs> announcements this week regarding uh, Seattle City Council races. Seattle City Council races. Yeah, early in the week, Council Member Andrew Lewis became the first council member to announce that he's running for re-election for his District 7 seat. And then later in the week, Council Member Shama Sawant announced that she's not running for re-election in District 3. Uh, instead, she's going to be working on a nationwide workers' rights campaign for a socialist alternative. Um, Lewis, Andrew Lewis was elected in 2019. He's nearing the end of his first term. He has chaired the Public Assets and Homelessness Committee and also served as the chair of the Parks Board, which naturally falls under public assets. So it'll be interesting to see if he wins re-election, and he may, uh, if he stays in that position or if he takes the public safety committee uh, chairmanship from Lisa Herbold, who is not running for re-election. He's currently the vice chair of that committee, and um, he's been working pretty hard to try to get the city, the mayor's office, and the Seattle Police Department to allow a, a civilian 911 responder team to get up and running. And he's been pushing for that and pushing for that and pushing for that. So it'd be interesting to see if he decides to make the jump over to chair that committee uh, if he if he wins re-election. Shama Sawant, she leaves a 10-year legacy of wins on, on workers' rights, tenant protections, um, including the $15 minimum wage, paid sick leave ordinance, uh, protections for renters, including things like the suspension of family evictions during the school year, uh, suspending winter evictions for all tenants, and winning relocation assistance for tenants who are subject to very high rent uh, increases. She's been pushing for a rent control ordinance, and it's been taking a while to get that drafted, but she has pledged to at least get the council to vote on a rent control ordinance by the time her term ends in December. She supported efforts to purchase and build public housing and to stand up more tiny house villages as transitional shelter for the homeless. She's one of the council members who routinely proposes more funding for tiny house villages in the budget. She's also pushed hard for the Amazon tax and other taxes on large corporations and the very wealthy in Seattle. Uh, when she pushed for the Amazon tax, I'm sure it was a major disappointment to see the other members of the council to, you know, doing these hasty meetings in secret and then turning around and voting quickly to overturn it. Perhaps she, perhaps she wasn't as surprised by that as some folks were. Uh, but she's also uh, pushed really hard for additional new taxes on the wealthy. And uh, we've seen the new payroll tax here in in uh, in Seattle. And that's something that she also supported. Now, she's also overseen the establishment of the Green New Deal Oversight Board and helped to get some of their priorities funded in the budget. And that's been a, a large part of her work that I think has gone un un unwatched and unheralded. I would, I would add to that that she was always a progressive force uh, with amendments to the city budget, uh, mm -hmm. some of which were successful. And, and in general, she moved what's called the Overton window. She um, 
you know, her insistence on progressive priorities shifted the council's discussions and uh, shifted the uh, uh, absolutely uh, sh- shifted shifted the sense of what was possible on city council, much to the consternation of the Seattle Times, I might add, and Amazon and a few other uh, major entities in city politics. But uh, she, her influence was entirely outsized to being one of nine members on council. Uh, she was incredibly effective. And, you know, she uh, she also taught other city council members, uh, Nick Licata in particular, who she served with early on in her, her tenure, um, what was possible when you had grassroots support for your priorities. And she saw herself first and foremost as an organizer of her constituents. Um, that getting, is an approach we're not likely to see again soon. Yeah, getting people to show up to city council meetings and to testify. That was one of uh, the big things that she that she uh, showed could be very effective in getting the full council to consider things that they otherwise would uh, dismiss or not vote for. Yeah. I, when when Bruce Harrell, now mayor, was president mm-hmm. of city council, I mean, he he would get apoplectic. Uh, because all of the Shama supporters jamming into city council chambers wanting to testify. And it's like, what's wrong with this? What, it's democracy in action. That's, mm-hmm. that was Harold's problem with it. He didn't want democracy in action, but that was what Shama brought to city council and she's going to be sorely, sorely missed. Now we had a, uh, a new candidate announced for district three this week, a woman named Joy Hollingsworth, who is uh, identifies as a black lesbian, um, has uh, a fair amount of uh, uh, community uh, activism w- within the district um, and is uh, is probably pretty well situated for uh, for the uh, primary coming up in August. Um, however, uh, she's going to split the vote with at least one or two that I know of other candidates who are going to jump in the race, probably we're going to see eight or nine candidates in that race would be my guess. Um, and, you know, yeah. I, I think a lot of a lot of people are going to jump in. As for the other uh, three open seats, at least so far, we have only Lewis, who has announced he's running for re-election, and then Dan Strauss and uh, Tammy Morales, who have not said whether they're running for re-election. Um, everybody else is stepping aside, which tells you how difficult the city council job is right now with budget constraints and, and a lot of controversial topics on the table. Yeah. Um, we now have four open seats, district one in West Seattle and it, and that, uh, that uh, the new district boundaries now includes Soto and Georgetown in District 1, District 3, which is Capitol Hill and First Hill, District 4, which is the U District, Wallingford, Laurelhurst, and Sandpoint, Alex Peterson's district, and District 5, Northeast Seattle, uh, Deborah Juarez. So those folks are all leaving, and uh, that's a lot of institutional memory. It's a lot of the uh, of the folks, you know, some some very key progressive folks there. But also, you know, a potential for more progressives to join the city council in those yeah. races. We can expect a lot of candidates to declare in in each of those districts. And they're going to be declaring, you know, within the next couple of months, mostly. 
Yeah, Hollingsworth um, is kind of an interesting candidate too. She's um, she's a former college basketball player and coach, and she's currently an employee at a family-owned marijuana business. She's the uh, she oversees processing for the family's locally grown cannabis for the Hollingsworth Cannabis Company, THC Company. Um, and some of the issues she said that she'd like to work on if she's elected to the council include things like affordable housing. Uh, sustainable food and and hunger issues, but also public safety. It'll be interesting to see. She hasn't uh, put a summary of her positions yet up on her website. To it'll be interesting to see what her position is on Seattle's public safety. Yeah, that that website uh, literally went live at the beginning of the week. So. Yeah, most of the websites that are up for the early candidates just have donate buttons and, you know, maybe a few photos on them. There isn't a whole lot of information yet because it's early. And also running so far in District 3 are the actor and activist Rye Armstrong. Again, someone with a website that just has photos and a donate button. Uh, And Asuka Jacks, who is a self-described out and proud rainbow Republican. Uh, That... Person, the mm. perennial candidate who regularly runs but very seldom does any kind of campaigning. Yeah. yeah. Also, also not running um, on county council is Joe McDermott from West Seattle, who has been on county council for at least a decade um, and is stepping aside. So West Seattle will have two open seats, one on county council, <coughs> excuse me, and one on city council. Yeah, Joe McDermott has uh, chaired the Budget Committee, is his recent appointment on the King County Council, and he's also chaired the King County Board of Health. So, you know, one of those folks who's been doing a lot of work, not always heralded, not always uh, uh, in the news, but kind of one of the workhorses of the King County Council. So it'll be interesting to see West Seattle residents and uh, his, his district covers not just West Seattle, but it covers much of uh, South Seattle, also downtown and Capitol Hill. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, who replaces him on the King County Council. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see who uh, the Chamber of Commerce fields uh, right. all these races, because uh, unlike uh, the different people who are currently jumping in, that is going to be a coordinated effort with a ton of money um, going to everybody. And um, uh, my guess is they'll put forward a slate of candidates to run in each city council district, as well as that King County uh, council dis- district seat that Joe McDermott has now. Yeah, agree. All right. Also saw this week that apparently a uh, judge has uh, made a ruling regarding the missing text, the deleted texts from a yes. years ago. This week, a U.S. District Court Judge Thomas Zilli ruled that two of the five claims in the lawsuit uh, called Hunter's Capital versus City of Seattle can go to trial, and he ordered the city to pay the attorney's fees of the plaintiffs in the case. The, that lawsuit arose in late June of 2020 after the George Floyd protests shut down an area on Capitol Hill to form the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest Zone. Several businesses inside the zone and in the area around it, the eight-block area, banded together to sue the city over the abandonment of the East Precinct Police Department building and the city's response to the protests. The plaintiffs allege that the city violated their rights to due process, was negligent, and allowed the CHOP zone to form uh, 
which was a taking of the business property and civil rights of, of the businesses in that area. Judge Zilly dismissed those three allegations. He did, however, rule that two other allegations could go to trial, that the city directly participated in creating the CHOP zone by providing public toilets, hand-washing stations, and dumpsters to the zone, and that the plaintiffs suffered a, quote, right of access taking, end quote, because protesters were allowed to block access to their businesses. Most importantly, Judge Zilly ruled that the missing text messages from former Mayor Jenny Durkin, former Police Chief Carmen Best, and several other high-ranking city staff were intentionally deleted. He said that there was very strong evidence that they were intentionally deleted. Uh, this is a direct quote from the judge. Quote, city officials deleted thousands of text messages from their city-owned phones in complete disregard of their legal obligation to preserve relevant evidence, end quote. In addition, he said that the city delayed releasing that information to the plaintiffs and the public. The lawsuit was filed on June 24th, 2020, but city lawyers took an additional four weeks before they issued an order to city employees telling them to preserve evidence, including emails and text messages. Um, Why should they have to issue an uh, an order for that? That's the law. It's the law. Exactly. In the meantime, several top city employees had purged their phones already, including Durkin, Best, Fire Chief Harold Scoggins, Seattle Public Utilities Director Idris Beauregard, Assistant Police Chief Eric Greening, SPD Chief Strategy Officer Chris Fisher, and Seattle Emergency Operations Center Coordinator Kenneth Neefsey. And I'm just pointing out here that Jenny Durkin in particular is a lawyer and she knows she has to preserve evidence in situations like these. And job, as you've pointed out before, people who enter city government are given a training on what kinds of records need to be preserved and text messages are part of that. The first week they sit (laughs) you down and tell you that and that that is the point that they hammer over and over again, even if it's your private uh, computer or your private phone, you have to preserve the records. Yeah. You have to. Yes. And in addition, city lawyers further delayed telling the opposing counsel and the judge that this evidence had been destroyed. <clears throat> they knew as early as July or August of 2020 that Durkin in particular was missing most of her text messages, but they didn't disclose this information until March 2021 more than seven months later. And I want to point out that that is well after Police Chief Carmen Best had announced that she would retire, which she did in September 2020, and Mayor Durkin announced that she would not run for re-election, which was in December of 2020. So it appears that, uh, that the folks at the top decided they were going to hide from the public the decision-making around the CHOP zone and the abandonment of the East Precinct. They deleted and, the evidence, and, and then they withheld that, the fact that they had deleted that evidence from the public until after they'd made the decision not to continue in their jobs. And remember, they also claimed initially that it was the on-site commander of SPD who made that decision and that they weren't involved in the decision-making at all which we now know is categorically false. Yeah. So some of those text messages have been uh, resurrected by uh, the city looking at other people's, you know, the recipient's cell phones. But the text messages between these top officials, particularly in the judge cited the text messages between Durkin, Best and Chief and Fire Chief Harold Scoggins as being particularly important, are all completely gone 
And uh, uh, he said that that's obstruction of justice as well. Of course it is. Moving on. Uh, state legislative updates. Yeah, some interesting bills were introduced this week. I'll just briefly go over about six or seven of them. Right at the top of my list is House Bill 1473, the wealth tax bill. It would impose a 1% tax on stocks, bonds, and other financial intangible property that's not uh, directly owned real estate. And it would be levied on assets above a $250 million floor. So only about 700 of the wealthiest Washington residents would pay the tax. And I'm kind of surprised that there are that many extremely rich people in Washington state. But I suppose I shouldn't be surprised since we don't have an income tax. Now, the revenue collected from the tax, if it passes, would go to fund education, housing, care for disabled folks and a tax credit for low and middle income families. If it passes, the tax would go into effect January 2025. So that bill was just introduced. There were several bills introduced to regulate firearms. Three are are, uh, bans on assault weapons. Senate Bill 5193 would expand the definition of assault weapons to include a list of specific brands and models of weapons and describes in detail what makes them assault weapons. Two bills would ban the import, distribution, and sale of assault weapons except to members of the armed forces and law enforcement. That's Senate Bill 5265 and Senate Bill 5193. House Bill 1144 would require background check to purchase any gun from a gun dealer in Washington state. House Bill 1195 would prohibit open carrying of firearms and other weapons in public parks and public hospitals. Senate Bill 5444 would expand that to libraries, zoos, aquariums, youth facilities, including playgrounds, pools, and rec centers, uh, transit facilities and transit stops, and publicly owned state or local buildings. Those two bills could run into opposition uh, based on the Second Amendment. So if those bills did pass, they could be subject to lawsuits. Several bills to require uh, and then several bills to require safety and training classes have been proposed, uh, including uh, a waiting period and background checks for gun purchases and other things. So uh, those are also in the works. And then finally, there were two tenant protection bills that were uh, uh, announced this week that the Tenants Union of Washington State is asking folks to sign petitions supporting. Um, they're asking folks to support other bills particularly housing related bills. But these two bills are uh, tenant are, are important tenant protection bills. One is House Bill 1388, which would set a limit of three percent to seven percent for annual rent increases in Washington state. And the amount would be determined by the consumer price index. And House Bill 1388 would authorize the state attorney general's office to investigate cases of rent gouging or massive rental uh, increases that aren't justified by the landlord's reasonable expenses as a consumer protection measure. So those two bills are very important. Uh, I don't know if they'll get traction in the uh, House, but the Tenants Union of Washington State is asking folks to sign a petition on their website for those uh, two bills to 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 uh, see them move through committee and reach the House floor. So that's the wrap up of some of the interesting bills that I saw this week. It's still early in the state legislature 
in the state legislative session. Uh, no bills have moved out of committee yet to either the House or Senate floor. Uh, the committees are still working on bills. If you're interested in finding out what bills have been proposed and what the various committees are doing, you can go to the state legislature's website at leg.wa.gov. <laughs> and isn't there, I believe there's an option for uh, when a bill is getting close to being finalized that people can weigh in um, uh, via the Internet to support or oppose uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a bill. Yeah, yeah that's and, it. And, and they also live stream all the hearings. Yes. So that there's some great resources on the state legislature's website. Again, it's leg.wa.gov. All right. <laughs> I know John hates it when I sing, but there you go. <laughs> I don't hate when you sing. I hate when you sing within earshot of me. <laughs> you can sing on your own time all you want. Okay, and I do. All right, moving on then to national and uh, fines uh, for our former president. Yeah, this was a uh, case that didn't get a lot of national attention when it came down yesterday. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a federal judge in Florida, Donald uh, Middlebrooks, um, finally um, basically held Donald Trump accountable for his long history of frivolous lawsuits. Uh, this was in a case where he sued 21 people, uh, headlined by Hillary Clinton for a massive conspiracy to deny him the presidency. Um, uh, and uh, Middlebrook's 46-page uh, ruling, uh, <clears throat> quote, this lawsuit should never have been brought in. Its inadequacy as a legal claim was evident from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Of course, that doesn't stop lawyers from going on Fox News to trumpet it. Um, it was intended for a political purpose. None of the counts of the amended complaint stand a cognizable legal claim or stated a cognizable legal claim. So he fined Trump nearly $1 million and his lawyers for bringing in this lawsuit. He also noted uh, other lawsuits that Trump has filed for political purposes. And uh, really, it's it's the first time where a federal judge has really called Trump out on his BS like this. Uh, it was a, a very bad political loss for Trump and an absolutely scathing ruling. It's well worth reading. Uh, you know, once you have heated up the microwave popcorn. Um, but um, uh, he, the same judge um, also is hearing a lawsuit that Trump has brought against New York State Attorney General uh, Letitia James who is investigating Trump for both criminal and civil complaints. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. Of course, Trump's whole strategy is to delay and to spin alternate, alternate narratives that he can put on Newsmax and Fox News and the rest of the right-wing media ecosystem. So uh, hopefully that is uh, a, a precedent that other judges will take note of and follow. Okay, moving on. Solomon Pena. Who is Solomon Pena? Pena, he is a failed Republican 
uh, candidate from the state of New Mexico is a district uh, in central Albuquerque. So that's similar to, you know, somebody running against Tammy Morales here. He did not have a chance, but he lost in the November election. And then he allegedly um, masterminded uh, hiring several other people to shoot at the homes of Democratic lawmakers who did not take seriously his uh, his insistence that the election was rigged and that he really won. That should sound familiar. Um, he is an ardent Trump supporter. He is now facing at least 15 felony counts uh, for both uh, shooting himself at the homes of Democratic lawmakers and hiring other people to shoot at Democratic lawmakers, including his drug-running buddies, uh, buddies who apparently helped finance his campaign as well. That also is being investigated now by the New Mexico State Attorney General. So here we have a case of a Republican candidate who took the uh, narrative of the election was rigged one step further, uh, where I'm going to shoot at the Democrats who don't believe the election was rigged. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious rabbit hole that they're going down. And really, uh, you know, given some of uh, Pena's past, he served a number of years in state prison uh, in the past. Um, it, and, you know, you could look at his website and see that this guy was uh, kind of nuts. Um, it, it really begs the question of do Republicans vet their candidates, especially in the wake of the George Santos debacle in Congress, where apparently nothing that Santos said during his campaign was even remotely true. Um, and he's having problems with that now that he's actually in Congress. Well, and they're finding out, too, that there were a number of folks who were working on Santos's campaign who knew who found out that uh, most of his background was made up and was false. And then they uh, tried to tried to get him to stop running. And when he wouldn't and when the local Republican Party wouldn't stop supporting him, they resigned. They had to say, I'm sorry, I can't work on this fraudulent campaign anymore. That's the state of the Republican Party now. Yeah, willing to lie, willing to run extreme folks who maybe have uh, who have a, you know, maybe are involved in criminal activity. And and back in New Mexico, the defense of Republican state officials goes something like, uh, yeah, well, we knew he was extreme, but we didn't want to alienate the Trump uh, base of the party. That's the state of the party. Yeah, where where people who are. Uh, not only extreme, but maybe criminal, um, can become, can, can receive the endorsement of, uh, Republican Party officials because they don't want to alienate and, the loving base. And funding from the local yes. Republican Party. Yes, and, and mm-hmm. funding from Republican donors as well. Okay, finally moving on to international, uh, there are some Pretty uh, large protests in in France, or at least uh, yesterday, in the last couple of days, there were. Yes, uh, over a million people in Paris alone, and this is a protest. Of course, France has a lot of protests, but this one is over a proposal to raise the mandatory retirement age from 62 to 64. Now, that may make no sense in the United States where ostensibly the retirement age is 65, but in practice people work until they drop because they don't have retirement savings or the pensions that they were counting on have been looted by hedge funds and no longer exist. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the safety net that people would still have in place in some of these European countries, even after the privatization um, efforts by, by you know, big international finance, um, make the United States look like a backwards third world country, which in many ways it is. Um, and we've learned to accept this as normal, uh, which is really kind of sad. Yes, we could learn a few things from uh, other countries. Yes, we could. All right. Well, with that, we're pretty much out of time for this week. But luckily, there's next week. Yes, And the week after that, we'll be here. All right. Talk with you both then.